0: This is TDPS. Hi, I'm Eric Shaw Quinn, and everyone here at TDPS would like to congratulate my co-host and best friend, Christopher Rice, also known as steamy romance author, C. Travis Rice, on the publication of Sapphire Storm, the third novel in his Sapphire Cove series. Sapphire Storm is the drama-filled tale of a forbidden romance that exposes old secrets and incurs the wrath of the powerful and the famous. It went on sale March 7th. Along with the first two entries in the series, Sapphire Sunset and Sapphire Spring, it's available wherever e-books are sold. Congratulations, C. Travis Rice, and congratulations, Christopher.
1: That's right, at Facebook.com slash The Dinner Party Show. No, I meant in the car. Hi, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Schalquist. And you're listening to TDPS Presents Christopher and Eric. And I always like to begin our episodes with a special moment where we give shit to our control room engineer, Master of Ceremonies, Brandon Griffith. Always. That's my favorite way to start an episode.
0: Okay. Well, it is kind of, it's fair, it's turnabout is fair play because that's how we actually began the show in the first place. (laughs) All those years ago, the last thing we heard before we went on the air, the first time we ever went on the air and we were live was, oh shit, and then we were live. And
1: <laughs> we didn't know what was and we were happening. Like, oh my
0: god, is the building on fire? What's happening? But we just kept going. Yeah. Right. And we're still talking. So, well, anyway, these years later.
1: This is what I love currently is that every day we start a recording session, Brandon has an increasingly fatigued way of saying, "Okay, I'm ready when you guys are." <laughs> kind of bullshit I'm not going to have to listen to today. Bracing
0: himself for another round of
1: what are they going to talk about now? And we don't let Brandon talk so he has no voice in our proceedings although he could edit himself in later and we don't know because we're not listening to the finished episodes. (laughs) He could
0: be giving directors commentary along the way. He could be reposting Joe Rogan episodes.
1: (laughs) 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 <laughs> okay, good. He's laughing. You know, Joe Rogan has some good ideas. No. um, All right. All right. We are kicking off the last leg of our True Crime Movie Time Summer Film Festival, which means uh, the next four episodes are <laughs> Look, going to be-
0: We're kicking off a leg.
1: <laughs> I got to tell you something. It's time for the Jude Taylor Dumpsters. <laughs> this is really- Picking the right language- To synopsize and promote these episodes where you feel like you're being compelling, but you also aren't being exploitive and gratuitous. Like, I watch how Dateline does it. They don't seem to have much shame. They'll have an arsonist special, and they'll say, things really heat up tonight on Dateline. They're absolutely shameless at Dateline. But we have a little bit more shame, I think, when it comes to that. We try not to celebrate. Okay, well, maybe that, but absolutely nothing else.
0: (laughs) That would be the only thing we have any shame about.
1: Welcome to the Shameless Podcast Absolutely. Network.
0: That's Shameless. That's the our new name.
1: So we've divided up the movie film festival into geographical regions, and this is the last one we have left, and we've stuck to the United States for this one. Um, sorry, Australia and the UK and the other people who— <laughs> All
0: the other criminals in the world. We'll get around to you. <laughs> Stick around, babe. We'll have a film festival with you all over it before you know it. <laughs>
1: Anyway, so this is Pacific Northwest Nightmares for our next four episodes. And I'm going to tell you, as as it came time to program this, and I don't need to tell you this because you were there and you went through this with me, we really started to—the well of true crime movies started to run dry of dramatic, scripted, two-hour movies that were not— Horrible TV movies from 1981. There yeah, were a lot of those. This is the beginning of irrationalization. I, <laughs> I hear for, for for
0: a lot of the programming choices. Because Christopher, during this whole festival, Christopher comes to me and says, "So I found all these, things. we won't have to have a production meeting. I just found all these great ones." And I'm like, "Well, that's terrific! Great, no meeting. I'm all in." And then we watch the movies, and it's like,
1: uh oh. <laughs> There's one coming. I don't want to talk about it yet. Spoiler alert! <laughs> Spoiler alert! But Uh-oh. oh shit! But I think our party people like it more when we hate stuff. I think they—that's why they tune in. I,
0: honestly, like it's like bad reviews are more interesting to read than glowing ones. Like yeah. I get it.
1: Well, OK, so we're starting a pairing. These have taken the form of true crime pairings where documentary about the case first, movie about the case second.
0: Right. And the idea behind it is that we see how the movie uses the facts or doesn't use the facts of the that we've discovered through this exhaustive 45 minute show that we watched about the crime. So like but it's about compare and contrast, like because sometimes like last I think it was in the la- one of the last pairings. Where they did, uh, what was the, the killer, the Midwest killers, the Charlie Sheen movie?
1: Badlands was the yeah, movie. Which was
0: like had absolutely nothing to do with the heartless serial killers that they, it was this sort of lyrical romantic romp mm-hmm. through the, the, you know, the interior of the kind of the plains of America mm-hmm. with these beautiful homoerotic pictures of um Martin Sheen, who, wow, Mm -hmm. Martin Sheen really, as a kid, I was like, okay, wow, that's shirtless, wandering around, endless shots from the director who's clearly mooning over him. Mm -hmm. Um, Even though he was brutally murdering all of these innocent people for absolutely no reason— was like, well, this really has nothing to do with the film at all. and the, Because the, the facts, ca- of, the case the the facts
1: of the case, the murders were so much more sadistic and brutal than they were. They were mostly portrayed as self-defense killings in the movie Badlands. And there, this is considered a classic movie, and this was not part of the commentary about it, either at the time or since. It's been inducted into the AFI, I think, Hall of Fame or classic and movie honestly, library. And honestly,
0: if we hadn't been looking at it in terms of the crime that it was based on, I think we might have had a different reaction. Yes. because it, But because it was such a glowing whitewash of something that was really, really brutal and sadistic and hideous. I mean, children being knifed to death. I was just— Two-year-olds, yeah, yes. Just disgusting yeah. crimes. Um, was like, okay, yeah, they just cut that out. Like, yeah. they just didn't do that. They just were, you know, it was an argument, and so we killed her
1: dad because he disagreed with us, And yeah. like you do. Because dads just don't understand. Right. Yeah. So there there may be some of that this month, maybe not. I want to ask you a question before we dive into this one. I knew when we were sneaking up on the Pacific Northwest that we were probably going to add some cases to our library that were considered edifying in the world of true crime analysis but that we'd never talked about yet, and the Green River Killer was one of them. Well, Did you is... know anything about the Green River Killer before we watched these shows?
0: I have to say yes. I mean, the Green River Killer I was aware of more for longevity than anything else because they've been talking about the Green River Killer for like almost my entire adult life. Right. This really went on for a long time from – when did it begin? In
1: the 70s, right? The Nineteen the, the early 80s. I think 1982, the first yeah. body was found. And then
0: it was in the 2000s. It was in this millennium that they yeah. actually concluded the case – it was really—so there would be reports of it in an ongoing basis, and it would come up, and there would be some focus on it, and there would be renewed interest, and then it would fade away, and then it would come back up again. So I think, honestly, I'm more aware of the Green River Killer because of that
1: mm-hmm. than of
0: knowing the actual ins and outs of the case.
1: Yeah. And so this was a case that was getting national attention? Is that how you remember oh, it? Oh, Yeah. Yeah. Because we talk about that—there were some cases here where it was like you have said, yeah, we didn't know anything about this. This wasn't being reported nationally. Yeah,
0: this one was because it just kept going and because there were so many victims. Right, absolutely. And it was always—the thing that was always really, I thought, noteworthy about the reporting, The a lot of the reporting was based on, you know, and because these are prostitutes, large— prostitutes nobody really cares about the crime and i'm like this has been reported on more than almost any other crime i've ever heard of yes and and investigated and special task force formed and all of the rest of it i i just am i'm not sure that's a truthful narrative
1: i don't think it is and i want to share something that was shared with us in the course of our discussion of the billy newton case because we talked a lot about that billy newton was a Uh, a sex worker who was murdered here in West Hollywood and his murder was recently solved in part because of the conversation we started about it here. But one of the first detectives I talked to a detective who was actually a vice detective at the time who discovered the body and was not involved in the investigation, but went on to have a big career in major crime said, look, we investigate anything where people will talk to us, but if they stop talking to us, We can't investigate. We're not scientists and we're not magicians. So we reach a point, particularly when we're talking to people like sex workers, where they will not open up with us because they are afraid. Even if we tell them we're not there to book them for sex work crimes or arrest them for anything else, the the mode of communication shuts down and they don't have really anything else to do. So if you've got detectives out in Seattle talking to other sex workers on the street who don't want to open up, who who are more afraid of the police than they are of being nabbed by the Green River killer – You've got a brick wall there that's hard to get over.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that's noteworthy about this crime is that it didn't really seem to, and maybe it's just the things that we watched about it, but it didn't really seem to have an impact on sex work. Yes. It doesn't seem like sex work dried up, even though it was clear that was who was being targeted. And it went on for 25 years. I don't even know how long. Forever.
1: Uh, This is 20 years. 20 years with, I think, the same truck. That's what blew my mind about this story. I don't think Gary Ridgway ever changed out the vehicle he was abducting these women, picking them up off the street, same region of Seattle, and I don't think he ever changed the fucking vehicle and they still took them that long to get him. It's just like
0: And I don't know that. I yeah. you know like I that, that was not reported on. Those are there are questions like that that I'm like, "Hmm, mm-hmm. I would like to know this and it doesn't get covered in the investigation." So I'm always like, I mean, surely yeah, In a 20-year period, he bought—now, he may have had a fondness for a particular brand and for a particular color, so he may have just gotten a new maroon Chevy yeah. pickup. But I have to think he must have gotten another one 20 years. Maybe it was his junker, you know?
1: Uh, who knows? Uh, there are details like that that, you're right, that get overlooked. And I'll tell you, as we discuss this documentary, which is a, an hour-and-a-half documentary, it's available to stream on Max, the recently renamed Max, which I will still think of as HBO Max for all because time. Because that's what it is. It's called Green River Killer Mind of a Monster. I actually think it's an ID special that is there now because Discovery and Warner Brothers merged. I
0: actually, I think I looked for this one on Discovery to see if it would be an ID and I did not find it because I was wanting to be able to say you can watch this on ID. You may be able to and I didn't find it, but I don't think so.
1: Yeah. So I, we have done a lot of documentaries like this, and what we find with serial killer documentaries where they basically tell you up front, this is who the killer is. We're going to show you in jailhouse interviews. It's like the first frame. Um, they go through... Victim, almost victim by victim, up to a certain point, and it becomes very repetitive for us in terms of discussion. So there may be some. We're always about preserving the voices of victims and making sure they aren't lost. But there may it may not be possible for us in an hour to talk about every single victim of the Green River Killer because he was the most prolific serial killer in the in, in history. Right?
0: Yeah, I think ever. I don't think anybody has ever. Yeah. And I think it, he may have been more prolific than. We even realize, but yeah. they were what we what they're able to establish factually is
1: seventy. Oh my God, it was like that seventy-five. Something, I think. Some, 70 we'll Something. We'll get to the number at the it, end. It
0: is really, uh, it is kind of mind blowing. But it, it went on for so long. Again, yeah. that's the thing that was most noteworthy to me. It, I just kept hearing about it. There was another one closer to home, like that sounded like Burger King. BT. BTK. BTK.
1: I don't know if he was quite as prolific. I will say closer to home for but both I, of us. But I
0: heard about him over a period of time. Right. He came and went. But that was part of his MO, right? Isn't that what the BTK stands for?
1: No, bind, torture, kill is what it stands oh, for. Oh, God. Yeah. Oh, God. Horrible. Oh, Jesus With Christ. With there, it was the brutality of the crimes. He was, like Ridgway, also carrying out a quote-unquote normal life, married, a daughter, a daughter who's since gone on to write a book about what it's like to have your father be outed as the BTK killer mm-hmm. the one who was closer to home who gave ridgeway a run for his money in terms of prolific but was later kind of revealed to be a fraud in terms of the number of confessions was henry lee lucas oh yeah and they really did a deep dive and they just said he would confess to anything that you put in front of him and we cops from all over would bring their unsolved the cases yeah, and was, he wanted yeah
0: there was very little proof of that so yeah it's hard to do. but with this guy they were really able to substantiate this 70-something number. Yeah. Of they, they, That's actually provable, and it might actually be more. Like, yeah. But that's how many they could prove and he could account for, because he couldn't even really necessarily remember them all, because it, it was like asking a hunter to identify all of his, all of the deer or something. It was, he had that sort of detachment from what he seemed to be doing. Anyway... Way ahead of
1: I'll get into it of but, the game, but yeah.
0: but yeah, it it was really and this is really kind of phenomenal. What are the circumstances? This is largely just a. a a videotaped interview with him. It really is. And then they cut back and forth to some sort of staged things and just kind of historical stuff and interviews with the people from the investigation.
1: Right. Interviews with, I think, I would say two of the pivotal detectives. And later on, possibly next week, we'll have a conversation about another detective.
0: I actually, (laughs) my question started this week. Oh, did it? Okay, good. I'm glad they'll be uh, coming up because, yeah, it was like the, okay, so... Mm -hmm. Is this the guy, or? Yeah. Right. Okay,
1: yeah. So we'll save that for next week. We'll save that for next week. Okay, July 15th, 1982, we begin with an interview of a young man named Galen Hershey, who says that he and his young best friend were out riding bikes when they looked over a bridge on the Green River and saw something pushed up against the post of an old dock in the current. What leaped out at them were brand new white tennis shoes. The boys waded out to it, showing way more courage than I ever would have had at that age or this age, to well, be Well, I frank. wouldn't even go in a river, for <laughs> heaven's sakes, or a lake. Those things are full of fish shit. I don't know what's going on with You that. would have been showing taste and class and a regard for your wardrobe. I
0: probably wouldn't have been on foot on a bridge, either. <laughs> you
1: would have been having tea down the street with That's the older right. women of the neighborhood. Talking about stuff. Talking about their husbands and fashion and things. All right. Um... As the boys become uh, grow closer to what is in the water, they see hair in the current coming out from a jacket that has clearly been wrapped around the head of a woman. To this day, Galen tells us he doesn't like seeing human hair under the water. And, and I he shaves his head. Him. Oh, is that true? I missed that. <laughs> I
0: took note of the fact that he shaves his head. I was like, oh, I guess that's, yeah. that explains the shaved head.
1: This is the body of a young woman named Patsy Caulfield. And previously, we have seen Patsy's sister interviewed. She gives a narrative of their family history, which is a challenged and difficult one. Their parents separated when they were young. Patsy never really rebounded. She became a wild child and a discipline issue and sort of struck out as a runaway and was clearly living on the streets and turning tricks as a sex worker. She disappeared at the age of 16. Then we cut to 2003, and that's basically, this establishes the structure of this documentary, which is we go back and forth between the case and interviews with Ridgway after his arrest in the early aughts.
0: Christopher and I, and all of us at TDPS, are still grieving the loss of my dear friend and our beloved premier party person, Anne Rice.
1: But my mother's literary legacy gave birth to a diverse and wonderful community of readers and fans who continue to celebrate her work online.
0: We invite you to join them on the Facebook page dedicated to Anne's legacy. That's where you'll receive the latest updates on new editions of her work and all the exciting changes coming to the AnnRice.com website.
1: Also on the Anne Rice Facebook page, you can join the mailing list to receive all the latest news and information about her forthcoming celebration of life in New Orleans. That's at facebook.com slash Anne Rice no spaces.
0: If you believe, as we do, that Anne's work is as immortal as her characters, then join us at Anne Rice fan
1: page on facebook.com. See you there. Our interviews take us back to the pivotal figures in the investigation. Detective Faye Brooks is introduced to us. She was with the King County Sheriff's Office. She tells us the first victim was found in mid-July 1982, just north of the Mika Bridge in Kent, Washington. She had very little clothing on. Her pants were tied around her neck. The autopsy revealed strangulation and a broken arm. And I guess the assumption we are left with is that the broken arm indicates that she put up quite a fight. I hope that's what we're supposed to believe. Well...
0: It's, it was back and, because it goes back and forth between him talking about the crime and them describing the, the, the findings. So there was some, like, what he says is he thinks maybe he knelt on her arm. Oh, God. Yeah. When he was holding her down and strangling her. Right. that Maybe that's how it got broken. He said he remembered hearing the pop. Right. Oh, God. So, like, yeah. So that makes it clear that he broke her arm while she was still alive. Like, yeah. Like, it would, the. The, the brutality of these and the torture, the,
1: mm-hmm.
0: the hurt that he inflicted on these people while they were living, he didn't just quickly put them out of their misery. Right. These were really sadistic killings.
1: One month later, four more women are pulled from the river, 23-year-old Debbie Bonner on August 12th. She's discovered by an employee at a meat packing company. Uh, the third victim of this cluster is Marsha Chapman. The fourth is Cynthia Hines. Both of those bodies are underwater and weighted down with rocks. Ridgway tells us in his 2003 interview he didn't want them floating away. The, uh, five more bodies are found on the banks. Opal Mills, or no, the my note, my note there just went haywire. I don't know what I meant. The five, fifth body. The fifth body. <laughs> You're good at, at finding the missing letter in my notes. The fifth body is— Five-hour f- bodies. Five. I didn't think that's what it meant. do not know what was— The, the fifth body. I was so horrified by what I was seeing. Uh, Opal Mills, she is found on the banks of the river. Ridgway tells us in 2003 that he almost got discovered depositing her, so he ran away, and that's why she wasn't in the water. We're introduced to Tomas Gillian, an investigative journalist for the Seattle Times, and he is sort of our resident journalist for this story. He will again come up in our discussion of the movie next week. Ridgway tells us in 03, I realized I had a problem killing. I just wanted fresh ones. We're then introduced to Patty Eeks and she is clearly the prosecuting attorney in 2003 who was handling the charges against him after his eventual arrest. We're not yet told the circumstances of that arrest. We're just using this sort of flashing back and forth format. Um, this is where we get the serial killer provides their own origin story and details stories that could have happened to any other person and not turn them into a serial killer but yeah. are used as justifications it, 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 here. It reminds
0: me of when they want to say that – violence in cartoons mm-hmm. produces violent children i'm like i would think there would be a lot more violent children if that was true like yeah. i loved bugs bunny but i don't think dropping an anvil on somebody's head yeah. is a good way to go even though i think that's you know funny when he's fighting with wile e coyote or elmer fudd or who have you i just i think that i think looking for those kinds of simplistic explanations mm-hmm. really kind of misses the whole yeah I think maybe the best description of how this comes together is in the play *Equus*, mm. where Dysart, the mm-hmm. psychologist, is describing—I think it's Alan Strang as the character's name—the the ways in which a thousand things come mm-hmm. together to produce this completely inexplicable response. Right. With him, it's naming horses, but. Mm-hmm. The way in which he arrives at that, he describes the sort of the thousands of synapses, you know, and all of the influences finally converging into this one click Right. that then, and then I did this and it gave me relief
1: mm-hmm.
0: because one of the things he says in his own, as they're interviewing him was for a while after doing it, it brought him peace. Mm-hmm. There was some peace in him. There was some something he was looking to quiet, some voice, some feelings about himself mm-hmm. he wept whenever he talked yes. about people not wanting him or rejecting him there was right. so there's something in there but like we don't most of us don't I would say almost all of us with maybe one exception um don't kill people for rejecting us like no. it still hurts, but that's a very extreme. Reaction, because ultimately his life was not that terrible. It wouldn't no. appear to. It wasn't like his mom seems to have been strict and a little harsh. But let's
1: but. talk a minute, and I, know I might be jumping ahead a little bit, about the way the documentary depicts his mom, because to accompany his description of his mother as, well, she wasn't a really good mother, and she just sort of acted like a sex object, were treated to these videos, and I don't know if they were really her or just file footage of this nubile woman in a bikini from that era which would be I guess the 50s or early 60s walking around the beach and And I'm like I'm sorry what exactly are you trying to say here that Gary Ridgway is a serial killer because his mother wore a bikini like I was like what's the statement here it felt like the presence of an agenda that made me uncomfortable well
0: I mean I my reaction was more they were trying to describe what he was saying Mm -hmm. I assumed they were actual footage of her because there was footage of her um I assumed that it was home movies of her and pictures from his youth but he was telling you these are the conclusions I'm drawing from this I think it goes I think it's very much in keeping with what you're saying like, Yeah. a lot of our parents wore bathing suits and that didn't turn us into mm-hmm. serial killers I think those kinds of easy answers are just not a very good explanation yeah. for why people do the crazy, fucked up things that they do. I mean, sometimes they're crazy and fucked up. And he seems to have had, like, one of the things they describe in him early on was that he was not a good student and maybe had special needs even and was whatever. And there is no aspect of him or his life that reflects that. He was Mm -hmm. a very accomplished man, very skilled. People thought he was a perfectionist. He was really good at what he did. Right. There was not a sense of this is some special needs person feeling his way through Mm -hmm. um, um, the minefield of life you know, There may have been like maybe he was on the spectrum a little bit or mm-hmm. something. I don't know. They didn't really clarify that, but they mentioned it. Again, it doesn't seem to have had any real effect on any other aspect of his life. Right. He was even able to form long-term relationships with other people, which also doesn't match up right. with the descriptions that, they, that we're talking about here, which I think is – gets back to the point that I, I thought they were trying to make or that I ultimately came away with was that those kinds of easy answers don't really apply to this yeah. sort of – this kind of criminal behavior.
1: There is a very specific victim typology, whatever you call it, sex workers. He is after sex workers. He, he sees a huge difference between a woman who is selling <clears throat> sex on the street and a woman that he would marry. And it shows in his life because he's never violent towards the women he marries. Oh. Yeah.
0: There isn't any real sus- – No, none of them even suspected him. Yeah. Like there was. They were all sort of completely flummoxed when the truth came out about him because there was no sense of that in their own lives. His wife describes him as, he treated me like a queen. Mm-hmm. I never was taken better care of. Controlling was the only thing that came out in I mean, that could be true of like half the men in the country.
1: Yeah, of course. So getting into his sort of horrible process as a killer, uh, they show him being interviewed about one of his victims, Giselle Levon, the 17-year-old runaway from California, and they ask him to describe what he did when he picked her up, and he says he went to the area where the sex workers were working the street. He got her in the car, and he took her out to an area called Des Moines Creek. Des Moines, excuse me. Why am I adding an S there? Um, Because you're from the South. That's the Des Moines. 17 miles south of Seattle, but close to the airport. So it was a wooded remote area, but there were planes flying overhead. And he would time his torture of her to these so that the jet engines would cover up her screams, which I thought was a detail right out of a horror movie. Um... We're introduced to Detective Sue Peters from the King County Sheriff's Office. Uh, She describes going to the FBI to get a profile because at the time the FBI was interviewing arrested serial killers to try to learn more about them. The profile, I'm sorry, as they always do, came back incredibly generic and said it was a white male in his mid-30s who might live with his mother. But they mentioned that this person would try to interject himself into the investigation by providing information which I don't think Ridgway ever did. So that was a total blind alley. Well, I mean, but, I think
0: it's another indictment from the, the Whatchamacallit because what it does is it leads them completely down yes. of, the, of the blind alley. It leads them to a completely false conclusion. Right. The wrong suspect about whom there is absolutely no evidence. They began pursuing people who tried to help them.
1: Right. And one of those people who, albeit, was very eccentric and strange, the 43-year-old— uh, As he
0: was described to us by the people who fucked up and thought he was a suspect— <laughs>
1: That's very true. Melvin Foster was his name. Um, he is placed under major surveillance, and four more young women go missing. So it is clearly not him because
0: they're watching him, and he's but, uh, not and this doing is,
1: it. This gets back to the point I also made. It was very clear to when a young woman like. Uh, A young woman goes missing. It's hard to link her to a killer usually because – but not if the killer is so narrow in their focus as the Green River Killer was. They knew if you were a young sex worker who got in a car and never came back on this – in this stretch, I think Pacific Highway they called it in Seattle, the Green River Killer had gotten you. They were that sure because that's how repetitive he was.
0: Yeah. I mean he had very much – very detailed and methodical – profile. They said he was, they described him at work as being a perfectionist. And you can see those kinds of details. His description of what happened in the car Mm -hmm. was chilling and amazingly well thought
1: out. Right. He would get them in the car and he would want to calm them down. And so he would show them his ID. but he There would be
0: children's toys on the dashboard. That's right, children's so there would So it would look like a family car. He dressed the car to look like they were getting in the car with a family guy.
1: And he would show them his ID, and he would cover up his name with the thumb, but he would have pictures of his kids in the facing side of the wallet that they could clearly see. Which would, along with the toys, make them, oh, okay. you okay. can calm
0: them down. This yeah. is just a normal guy who's yeah. really... And I think that's how he eluded capture for as long as he did. Also, the bigotry of local police.
1: So... On March—April uh, uh, 30th, excuse me, 1983, a young 18-year-old woman, Marie Malvar, from the Philippines is reported missing from an area of Washington called Des Moines. I'm going to say it correctly. She's picked up from Pacific Highway South, which is the area where he, Ridgeway has been targeting sex workers. Her boyfriend sees her getting picked up in this truck, follows them, but the truck gets away from him. A lot of missing pieces in that story of why the boyfriend knew to look. Was the boyfriend pimping her out? We're not told— The boyfriend and Marie's father get a gun and track the truck down to a specific house. It is Ridgway's truck. It is Ridgway's house. The boyfriend and the father go to the local police. Like you're supposed to. The sergeant goes to Ridgway's house. And he
0: was an old friend from school.
1: And Ridgway convinces him, oh, I got nothing to do with this. Those people are crazy. I don't know what that's about. She was
0: actually in the house at the the time.
1: In the house, tied up. This is
0: when? What year?
1: 1983.
0: So this is 20 years before they capture him. Yeah. They could have, how many lives could have been saved if that bigoted, incompetent butthole hadn't just. You know, well, this is a white guy I went to school with, so mm-hmm. its I don't need to investigate further. He said he didn't do it, and yeah. obviously that means he didn't. Like, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, two people have identified this is the truck of the killer, and if you'd gone in the house, you would have found the girl mm-hmm. there, but you didn't, and you didn't follow up, and nobody ever—they never really come back to it.
1: No, no. Where the special goes is this weird sort of racial connection. They, they, they go from the fact that Marie is of Filipina ancestry to the fact that Gary was in the Navy uh, during Vietnam and that he had his first encounters with sex workers in the Philippines. They interview a man named Stuart Bracken who was in the Navy with him, also a Vietnam vet. Uh, he said that Gary was using sex workers in bars, which Stuart never did because he never, no never, not his thing. He said that Gary gets syphilis and gonorrhea, and that's why he hated prostitutes. Chlamydia,
0: not oh, syphilis.
1: Uh, syphilis and chlamydia, and that's no, why— No, gonorrhea and chlamydia. Gonorrhea and did chlamydia. did not
0: get syphilis.
1: Okay. Gonorrhea <laughs> and chlamydia. Very important distinction. This is the daughters
0: um, of King Lear.
1: Yes, and that's why he had a hatred for prostitutes. That's Again, horseshit. Again, really an oversimplification. But, I mean, it's like they're trying to make a statement about why he would have— why he was going out to the woods with all his other victims, but why he took Marie back to the house. But it doesn't really pop up with any of the other victims. And
0: he took a lot of them back to the house. He Mm -hmm. said that it was... When he finally did marry, that it was weird to have be sleeping in the same bed where he'd killed all those women. Yeah, I guess you're right. New, yeah. So yeah, it was it was very much a it was that was part of his mo. He brought a lot of those women back to the house and killed them. He would back the truck in so that he could just shovel them back into the back right. easily, and the neighbors wouldn't see.
1: Um. So there, like I said, there are a lot of victims here, and I do The special couldn't even go into everyone because he was so prolific, but now we sort of get into his more of his personal life, that he was married before he deployed to Vietnam. Uh, He and that wife ended their relationship. He began dating a woman named Carol Christensen, and this is where the divide between... You know, I should correct what I said earlier. The divide between sex workers and the women who were in his house started to fray. Eric. Yes, Christopher? Have you been to my website lately? Why would I go to your website? You're sitting right here. Well, it's the place to find out all about my new books. And fuck ChristopherRiceBooks.com. This ad did not go as planned. This was an ad. So, the special goes into one victim of Ridgeway's who seems to blur the line between the sex workers he typically targeted and the fact that he was able to maintain intimate romantic relationships with women. And the victim is Carol Christensen, and her daughter, Sarah King, is interviewed. Hmm. But she talks about Carol as if she was struggling in her life um, and was maybe targeted by Gary because she was struggling. Uh, she was trying to put her life together, back together after a divorce. Um, she and Gary were technically dating. They were having sex, and she told him that he, uh, she had to work a double that day, and she wanted him to hurry up, and he snapped and murdered her. He takes her dead body out to a place called Maple Valley. This is May 8th, 1983. She's later found lying on the ground, hands crossed, sausage in her hand, and a fish and a bottle of wine nearby and a paper bag over her head. None of this is similar to the previous bodies the or victims. Complete
0: departure from everything else he's ever done because it was a diff- very different. I guess they must have gotten the detail about her saying... you. She wanted him to hurry up from him. I don't know. It wasn't clear to me in the special because I was like, how do we know that?
1: Well, we go right back to the 2003 interview with Ridgway in prison where he says that the fish and the sausage were about throwing her out with the trash. He says that in in response to very leading questions in that interview. I don't think Ridgway is innocent, but I think as they try to chip away at his motives, there's some real prompting going on from the interviewers just in the clips that we end up seeing. So I assume he said it there just before the
0: yeah, film started. I don't know where we got that actual information, but it was whatever the case with the the, the posing of the body, it was a real departure, even in location, as I recall, mm-hmm. um, with, uh, with what he had done in the past with other victims. They were not even sure at the time that it was connected because it was such a departure.
1: There's an escalation happening as well, and I think the special gets a little vague about that. I have heard separately... Of terrible stories about what were done to the victims and what were done to the bodies that actually were far worse than anything said in this special Um, but there are increasingly disturbing things done there are rocks placed inside genitals there's uh, other details that I don't even want to go into there is a pregnant victim at one point and it's important to note that the average age of all the victims across um, the pool of blood that he leaves behind is junior high aged women 15- Fifteen and sixteen-year-old women—that is the average age of his victims. God, I didn't realize that. Which says to you what the average age is of people who are working the strip on Pacific Highway.
0: Yeah, there's no entry level for yeah. that particular. Maybe <sighs> if we legalized it and had some standards, it we could actually, yeah, keep young people out of that particular out
1: of that profession. Anyway, yes. okay. So at this point, the community is—I mean—they've gone this long with no capture and this constant menace, as you were describing. There are marches happening. Uh, There are people saying that, you know, the narrative you talked about earlier with sex workers, they're not being valued. Um, But we are introduced to shalene I think that's how you pronounce her first name, Horton. She is Ridgway's neighbor, and she talks about what it was like to live across the street and down the block from him since 1981 when he moved into her neighborhood. She gives us the detail you provided earlier, Eric Shaw Quinn, that he was— the, the most annoying thing about him, and, and the way she describes it, the only annoying thing about him as a neighbor was the, he insisted on backing his truck up into the driveway, which meant if you were on the street with him, you had to wait for him to turn his truck around and back it in. And now she wonders if that was because he was hauling bodies, like you said. Well, obviously. February 1984, from Valentine's Day until the end of the, end of the month of March, they uncover the remains of six more women. Uh, there's been a task force that's been assembled, the police department spends $100,000 on a computer that's the size of a file cabinet, which is intended to collate really long time ago. all the tips that they're receiving. It's pretty hysterical to watch them unbox this, quote-unquote, computer, which was uh, just unbelievably enormous. Yeah, I
0: think it came in a, a fruitwood cabinet. It was really absurdly of a different time period because there was no such thing as personal computers in 1980, whatever this was, 84.
1: Um so by the start of 1985, it sort of slows down, and people start assuming that he's done, or he's gone away, or that he's gone to prison for another crime. Whoever he is, they don't know who he is, and everyone's like, "Okay, the Green River Killer's over." What had really happened is he had gotten married. He had met a woman named Judith Lynch, who we are is revealed to us by way of her biographer, which should tell you how Judith's marriage ended up. Yes, um, obviously, since we know Ridgway was arrested in '03. But Judith tells her biographer that when she met Gary, she thought she had won the lottery. She said, like you said earlier, he treated her like a queen. And she realizes she was sleeping in bed with a man who killed 30 women, many of whom in that bed. In the bed
0: that she yeah. was sleeping in. I just I just can't imagine what that revelation must have been like. And they had a little—she had a little sort of preview and uh, and was so—it was so antithetical to the man that she knew that she— didn't believe it
1: yes so a victim or a potential victim gets away gets into the truck and manages to make an escape um and this potential victim gives a composite sketch I'm sort of looking ahead through my nose to try to find where the thing was that led to the search warrant she also bit Ridgeway during their struggle Ridgway later says the mistake he made is that his pants were down around his ankles as he was trying to pin her between his legs, and that didn't work, and that's why she got away. Um, uh, let's see, but what, what, what led them to the truck? He had been arrested for solicitation... That was it. They brought her what they called a photo montage. I had never heard that term used quite that specifically. Of men who were similar to the composite spe- uh, sketch who had been arrested for solicitation previously. And it turns out Ridgway was arrested for just the such, such a thing in May of 1982. So his photo was in the database two months before the first body was found. Um, they put Ridgway under surveillance. They see him cruising sex workers. In April of 1987, they get a search warrant. They search his house. They search his work locker. They search his vehicle. They question Judith. Uh, The search warrant covers a lot of trace evidence, which they take, but at the time cannot test foreshadowing. Um, And they do not find uh, the smoking gun that they are looking for.
0: And they get a cheek swab.
1: Oh, (laughs) You from G- from Gary, <laughs> you made a cheek swab gesture, and I immediately began wiping my mouth. And I was I, like, "Nobody's see here." How, okay, yeah, I'm
0: sorry. Nobody, yeah,
1: no, it it's was still our podcast, folks. It, I'm sorry, they didn't
0: really have DNA at no. this point in time, but it was it was the most significant thing that they did in the entire investigation of the crime was get that cheek swab.
1: And remember this moment for next week. That's what I'm going to say. This particular moment in the investigation will come up next week in our discussion of the movie The River Man. All right, so put a pin in that. Um, the, uh, we're, we've been interviewing a detective named Matt Haney, who was very much on the case at this time, and uh, I believe he was convinced that it was Ridgway, and this was a huge disappointment for him. Everyone was convinced it was Ridgway. With one exception, which we'll talk about next week. This
0: we'll also talk Yeah. About, yes.
1: Um so despite marrying Judith and having gone quiet and despite, I guess, all of this near arrest, Ridgway starts killing again.
0: Yeah, there's a, a quiet period when he first marries Judith and then it begins. And, but there's like a year, 1985, mm-hmm. they think he's stopped. They think he's dead or gone to prison or moved to a different environment or somewhere and then it begins again.
1: But in 1990, the task force is disbanded and the investigation is officially closed. Then in November of 2001, there are huge leaps forward in the field of DNA forensic analysis, right. which is how Gary Ridgway ended up talking to us on camera in 2003 about because his crimes. The, he had
0: left all kinds of um, evidence all over the victims that he didn't know was evidence that became evidence because of the technological advances in and around DNA and there was that cheek swab.
1: Absolutely, um, Carol Christensen, who the woman he was actually dating at the time of his remember had had a vaginal DNA sample done. Uh, there was DNA collected from the genitals of other victims. Uh, don't want to go into too many of those gruesome details. Um, and the cheek swab, as you just mentioned, all of that led to his arrest at the age of fifty-two. So years after leaving the task force, Detective Matt Haney was vindicated that the guy he thought was the Green River Killer was, in fact, the Green River Killer.
0: And as one of the other detectives actually says, you know, he solved the case because it was him who got that cheek swab. Mm -hmm. And that's what – that was the thing. That was the detail from all of the investigations, everything that they did, that one choice of getting that cheek swab, even though they couldn't use it Mm -hmm. in that moment – yeah, and didn't test it at that time because it would have destroyed the sample. Mm-hmm. To test, then they had very limited abilities. Um, that's the thing that ultimately brought down Ridgeway.
1: And an important detail to remember, possibly for our discussion on our next episode, is that they did not test it immediately when the technology became available either. It was someone in 2001 who thought it. it's probably a good idea to go back and test all that evidence.
0: Because why not? We yes. actually can. But yeah, there's, you know, like, the my big thing remains the, the detective not thoroughly investigating the fact that those two men led him and the police mm-hmm. to the house of the killer, the driver of the truck. Right. Um, and then when it was an old friend from school, he just didn't even go in the house. I he know. just left.
1: Well, where did we hear that before? We heard. I don't know if we've, we've ever done it in detail. We talked about it in the context of the Billy Newton story. But that is a awful hallmark moment of the Jeffrey Dahmer story, that one of his victims fled on foot. And was returned to Jeffrey Dahmer's house by the police, thinking it was just a lover's quarrel, and was murdered, later killed. I, I just, it's a horrifying story.
0: Why would you take somebody, even if it was a lover's quarrel, why would you take somebody back yeah. to the person they were quarreling with? Take mm-hmm. them to the Motel 6 or wherever yeah. they want to
1: go. Like, it's, they're not property. Or home. I don't think he was living there. No. Yeah. Justing. Uh, anyway, I don't think anybody was living there other than Jeffrey. Okay, so to wrap up the legal side of this, initially Ridgeway is charged with four murders in December of 01. For 18 months, they re-examine 75 murders they suspect him of being guilty of, but they can't prove all of them. So they make an agreement with him to toss the death penalty if he tells them the truth about the ones he he did commit. He takes them out to find bodies. He's very polite. He greets everyone each day of their little road trip. uh, They finally find the body of Marie Malvar. That's the 18-year-old woman who was in the house in the story you were just describing, whose family left her room untouched since her disappearance and baked her a birthday cake every year in hopes that she would return heartbreaking. December 18th, 2003, he is sentenced. He pleads to 49 murders for which they can find evidence to corroborate his confessions. He confesses to more. He receives 49 life sentences with no chance of parole. Okay. So, the thing that I'm going to bring up on our next episode is not actually about the detective. You were just talking about the one who bungled it so badly. It's a different detective.
0: No, I'm talking about the cheek one.
1: Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. was the
0: detail that I was like, So yeah, so that cheek swab is something to pay attention to. Pay attention. That that was a real sort of red flag. I'm interested. I'm glad to know that you did additional research. Mm -hmm. I'm interested to know what you find out. And you all must be dying to know what the fuck we're talking about, since it (laughs) isn't really based on it. I think the thing that was the most interesting to me about this special, which I thought was pretty well done, Mm -hmm. um, was the idea of him getting away with this for so long. Because he didn't seem like he could do it. Yeah. He didn't seem like the guy who would do it. Like, it really sort of put a pin in all of that profile stuff. Like, this was a guy leading a very regular life. Children, wives, long-term relationships, steady, rock-solid employment, good on the job, had the same job for more than 20 years, great on-the-job performance, admired by friends and family, beloved by his wife, the neighbors the, – when, the, when they went after him, the neighbors just thought it was ridiculous. They right. were like, well, that's just not possible. It can't possibly be Gary or whatever his name was. Yeah. Like they were just – they had this reaction of like this is – no, you've got the wrong guy. No. Nobody could be less likely to be this horrible killer. And that was really – that's chilling and terrifying, but it's also really insight into it like mm-hmm. – just because somebody is weird or doesn't like the guy they went after, the cab driver who just came in to try and help them and said he had given cab rides mm-hmm. to a number of the victims, um, well, they described it as being kind of weird, right? But not in any way, and mm-hmm. matching their profiler's description of who he should be, and not the, the, in any way. This
1: guilty. is, I, I agree with you on all this, all these counts, and I think they add up to something which was this was a brand new science. This investigating the minds of serial killers, profiling serial killers, it was brand new. And it was based on some really shoddy research, incomplete research, going to and it's not easy to research serial killers. But going to the prison cells of incarcerated offenders and asking them to tell you why they did what they did is going to give you biased, self-interested narratives by people who are suffering from profound psychological problems. So it's not going to give you the forensic evidence you need necessarily to catch the next one or to predict who the next one's going to be. And this was all incredibly um, infant. it, It was an infant science. And I think the way that profiling advanced was when I think people like John Douglas, who ended up having a real career with this, could walk into an actual crime scene and look at what was suggested about the behavior of the killer at the crime scene. Like, there was a famous story about John Douglas was able to tell the local police, your killer has some sort of facial deformity, something wrong with his face. And they said, how can you tell that? He says, because he's killing his victims from behind and he doesn't have any other reason to. He's not restraining them, he's not having sex with them, he's coming up on them behind and he's behaving with them in such a way during the struggle suggested by the body that he's actually trying to hide his face from them for some reason. And so you're looking for someone who was possibly embarrassed. And I think that actually turned out to be the case. So that's one of those well, stories where it would where... really help
0: your your story if, yeah. if it did. If it didn't, it would be a complete outlier and totally not appropriate. So right. I, I
1: assume it must have been somebody. I'm just with a trying to be me. you know modified in my in my retelling. No,
0: bit. I think that's I think it's good to be fair. But those are the kinds of I would love to do. Maybe it's something we can pursue on a future episode. You know, some kind of look into a, a documentary about profiling because mm-hmm. to me it seems kind of specious I I just I'm not sure that it's something that that seems very credible to me as a way of trying to identify because even asking the person themselves why they did something like it, I've spent years working on myself and only have sort of varying results of <laughs> insights into choices I, I I've made. I have plenty in stuffing of insights into
1: you. I know into, why you into do stuff everything. That
0: I've, into stuff that I've decided to do. You know, like, why did you do that is such a multifaceted question. Why did you make that bad decision? You know, yeah. like, maybe I thought it was a good decision, or maybe I didn't feel like I had a lot of choices, or maybe, I mean, there's a whole wide variety of of reasons that don't seem to necessarily fall into easily identifiable characters. Right. So it would be – I think it would be interesting to see how the science has matured, if you will, since we were talking about it being in its infancy. You know, has it matured to a, a level where there can be a better – I mean, I think it's nice to have those kinds of beliefs yes. about, you know, the, the what was the profiler or what was the name of that show, The Mentalist.
1: Right, yeah. Yeah. Um,
0: you know where the the guy could just walk in and tell you everything, all of the facts, just from having a look around, or Sherlock Holmes, or those kinds of notions of being able to see through the the from the details of a crime right. through to who was guilty of them. I think that's that, that makes me feel better, but right. I'm not sure how realistic that actually could be
1: i I think that's a very good point and i think the john douglas story may be an isolated one because i think what we're living through is the age of forensic science blowing apart people's gut instincts about investigative technique you you may you may have built a narrative why you think this person is guilty but if the dna tells you they were in pennsylvania and the crime was committed in california you need to let your narrative go and tunnel vision i think is code for largely in the legal system, they weren't willing to let their narrative go. Right. We saw that in the Devil's Knot story that we did in the previous segment of the tour. Absolutely. That, uh, we, they, a local community where certain religious beliefs were dominant believed these – emo goth kids because of how they dressed and weird things they said had to have committed these horrible murders <laughs>
0: stupid horrible man yeah who, the, who still believed it even after they had proved beyond a shadow of a doubt by every evidentiary means possible yeah that they weren't guilty he still believed that they were guilty the the hurricane and some of those stories that they've talked about yes uh, they've made into movies later people got putting it because people had a hunch that well if he didn't do you know like he's guilty of other stuff so he must be guilty of this right Again, leaping to sort of unfounded, hunch-based conclusions.
1: But we, in a previous episode, have also talked about another avenue in, that's more science-based in this area, which was the documentary Crazy Not Insane. Do you remember that? We talked about it on episode 57. And it was a neurologist who said, we are not looking enough at a, head injuries, a, a marriage of the type of distress, psychological background we see with a lot of serial killers, but the head injury... Is what pushes them over the edge into the into sadism, essentially. Yeah, that we've seen. With, we yeah.
0: even, I think we talked about it. Wasn't it the um, the uh, son of Sam? Wasn't there a head injury involved
1: with that? I think we maybe there was. Yeah, there definitely know. was with Bundy. She talks about Ted Bundy, who's going to come up on our next episode because he was. He was sort of a candidate for the Pacific Northwest nightmares, but he killed all over, and he was eventually tried and executed in Florida. So we didn't. But even stuff like the yeah.
0: Hernandez killing, you know, yeah. the more contemporary stuff and the, mm. the sort of the our growing knowledge of what happens to football players who repeated head injury right. develops profound personality changes. Yeah, I think even O.J. Simpson. Yes. As a candidate for that kind of. Look, I, would, I hope that he will donate his brain to science so that we can get some look into so he can finally do anybody any, any good in the world. I
1: swear to God. Okay, so next week. True Crime Movie Time appearing with this episode. It is going to be a movie that I thought was not a TV movie and pitched it to you as not a TV movie and turned out to be a TV movie. See,
0: we're already beginning to rationalize our way into this. Shame on me. Back as we into like this, to say. this yeah.
1: shame on me. It's called The River Man. It is streamable on Amazon Prime here in the United States. It stars Bruce Greenwood and Carrie Elwes. And it is about the Green River case, but it is also about where it intersects the Ted Bundy case. So we will end up sort of talking about well, Ted Bundy. Well,
0: that's what it says in the the <laughs> credit, the description, anyway.
1: But Eric has big opinions about that, large, as always. very large opinions next week. So until then and forever after, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you've been listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. Thanks. This is T.D.P.S.